Colonel Blake. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8 that's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counteroffer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counteroffer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counteroffer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. 
Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counteroffer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Tired of paying too much for your internet? Contracts and hidden fees got you down? Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month, Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento. Asiento. Take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays. Taco Tuesdays. First Wednesday, live jazz. Live DJs Thursday. Parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. 
El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive. It's your boy Sifo here, here to let you know that the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is March 1st through 7th, 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week. Get your tickets now on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the U.S. coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. Or if you can't be with us, listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Law Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Law Tigers watches over riders. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers, California's motorcycle lawyer. Mr. Terrace, Harris Law Firm, LLP, 180 Permanent Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California, 95834. Sing one more song and we'll have an intermission. I dreamed I saw Joe last night Live as you for me And says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he Copper bosses killed you, Joe. And they shot you, Joe. Says I. It takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe. I didn't die. Says Joe. I didn't. Big as life and smiling with his eyes. 
the noise and to do you wonder who is that person that lives up there and you see me stepping out in the morning looking nice with a ribbon in my hair <laughs> and the ship the black freighter runs a flag up its masthead and a cheer rings the air Todo lo 
quién eres te reíste mal hombre tan ruin es tu alma que no tiene nombre eres un canalla eres un malvado eres un mal hombre show we're here on a saturday morning between 10 and 12 as we do every saturday mutiny radio and el mero mero the corazón of the mission i'm the b aka bill morgan working the morning shift with you on a saturday and this is labor and love radio where we tell you how it is if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We're talking to you today from Mutiny Radio where... Great Comedy Festival is happening. This will be the final day. So get on down here and hear comedy in the making. Well, today we let off. Our first set was Joan Baez. And Joan Baez live from the Woodstock Festival. Other people got out and sang about drug, sex, and rock and roll. Joan Baez came out and sang about labor because I think she understood that what was going on there at that time was at base a labor movement, a bunch of working class kids who looked into the future and didn't like what they saw. After that, we had the great Nina Simone, Nina Simone with Pirate Jenny, a Bertolt Brecht Kurt Weil song from the Three Penny Opera. And we ended up that set with Lidia Mendoza, 
E. Mendoza V. Angela V. Border labor camps in the 1930s and 40s, singing Malombre, which fits our president, I think. Malombre translates, um, translates literally as a bad man, but it's, it's, a, it's a real um, profanity, really bad, bad thing to call somebody. And if the shoe fits, Mr. Trump, wear it. Okay, so like I say, we're going to celebrate women today, the last half of our show. But the first half of our show, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Mr. David Stolowitz, one of the many comedians who's working here this week. And... Uh, Actually, a real stalwart in the whole mutiny radio situation here. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. You're on mic. Here we go. Now try it. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello. Ah, there we are. That's it? Yeah. Okay. You're on four. Oh, it's four. Okay. We must have switched right? them. Yeah. Okay. Pardon me, everybody. We just had to get our mics. <coughs> um... So, David, um, first thing, uh, welcome to the show. Really nice to have you. And uh, we were talking off mic before the show. And uh, uh, really hit it off with this guy, discussing our, our lives at the different stages we're at. So, David, we agreed that we would talk about each other's lives a little bit here. Um, so, I'll start. I was born in San Francisco in 1945. Um, my mother was Greek, so we spoke a lot of Greek in the house, little of which I remember. Um, my dad was Irish, grew up in San Francisco, mostly in the Sunset District of San Francisco. Um, my family moved, they were trying to be upwardly mobile to move to Marin and have a house in Marin, but my dad kind of cracked up. Uh, he was a, an alcoholic and he kind of cracked up and so we moved to uh, Daly City. And that's where I finished growing up. How about you? Uh, I was born in Stockton. Uh, my father was doing a PhD program at the University of the Pacific in biochemistry and uh, so he graduated from that and went on to work for Caltech for a little while in Pasadena. So we, I lived in Long Beach um, for maybe seven years as a kid for most of elementary school. Uh, then we moved up to Washington State, uh, to Redmond. Uh, that's where Microsoft and uh, Nintendo of America is based out of. It's near Seattle. Uh, we grew up there, and uh, I graduated high school as the class of 2001. So what a blowout that was. You're a millennial. Uh, the millennials don't want to claim me. I'm right on the borderline <laughs> with Gen X. I was born in 1983. Um, okay. So some people call me an Xennial, but I find that to be a weird term. <laughs> I am the tail end of Generation X. <laughs> I sort of feel like I was the tail end of the boomer generation, too. Yeah? 
Um, I was born in September, the same month that the final peace treaty with Japan was signed. Oh, wow. So, you know, first, new generation. Um, okay, so you grew up in Stockton. and, and No, uh, Washington State. I was just I'm born sorry. in Stockton. <laughs> Redmond, Washington. Yeah, that's it. Okay. And um, let's see. Let me go on. Like I said, I, I, I was educated at UC Berkeley at a time when there was a draft for the Vietnam War. And I joined the war resistance movement, got into all kinds of other political things at that time. Um, graduated from UC Berkeley and immediately had to get into some kind of uh, occupational program or something or else I would have gotten uh, drafted. So I filed CO papers and uh, got into a teaching program, elementary school, which at the time I, I didn't like the idea of it at all. And my parents were going, oh, you make such a great teacher. <laughs> so I got into the program and uh, ended up working uh, about 30 years as a teacher. Okay. Ball to you. Okay. Um, let's see. I got my undergraduate in history at Sonoma State University. Uh, I tried to get an MA in linguistics at San Jose State, but I didn't make it for personal reasons and health problems. Uh, so I got into comedy about the same time, uh, around 2013. So, you know, coming up on seven years, but not quite there. I started at the tail end of the year. I uh, enjoy storytelling, uh, hiking. I live on a, a horse ranch in Morgan Hill on the north side of town. And I work at a windows and doors company there. It's only about 15 minutes away. Uh, I have a, a partner. I'm a gay guy. Uh, he's a Mexican immigrant. His name's Augustine. I love him very dearly. And uh, our goal is to eventually get a home. But I don't know how we're going to accomplish that. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. In this area. Yeah. And is your partner into comedy as well? Um, yeah, he prefers classic Mexican comedy like uh, El Chavo. <laughs> Sometimes we'll watch uh, this show called Vecinos, uh, Neighbors. It's uh, a cable show. But the, the one Mexican comedy we really loved together was uh, Club of Crows, Club de Cuervos. It's a Netflix series about a Mexican soccer team, and oh, it's hilarious. And it, it's great practice, too. If you watch it on Netflix, you can turn on subtitles and get better at your Spanish while you enjoy it. <laughs> I'm somewhat familiar with some of this stuff. Uh, my wife is a Chicana. Okay. And um, we, we watched uh, Cantinfla. Oh, yeah. Cantinfla. He loves them, too. And she, she watches a novella, but I can't think of the name of it. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Los Cuervos. I've heard of. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your work. This is a show about the labor movement, after all. Let's talk about our work. Um, you said that you've been in situations on your jobs where you were discouraged from talking to someone about a union. Um, not in my happen? current one, but before, yeah. 
happened. Um, it's just kind of a preemptive move these days with corporations. Um, they want to give you alternatives. They want to make uh, unions sound like a, a bad idea, that this is going to be something that will interfere with your pay and your career options. Um, you know, unions are all corrupt. They're run by the mob, the Jimmy Hoffa kind of idea. There was another uh, movie about it made recently, The Irishman. I haven't seen it, but... I saw it. Yeah, was it any good? Um, it's sort of like a genre now, Hoffa movies. Mm. And Al Pacino is good, and Robert De Niro is excellent. But it's kind of... What do I want to say? It, it's, it's kind of a, a cliché by now. There's a St Stallone movie about... The Teamsters, the one, there's one with Danny DeVito and Jack Nil Nicholson. This one sort of gets into the guts of more of how he was killed and everything. And the inside, kind of the inside stuff about the relationships between the different Teamster leaders. And so it's, it's worthwhile, I guess. Um, I, I've always had two minds about Hoffa myself. I mean, I think in a way he, he certainly was targeted because he was a strong labor leader and a strong labor leader is um, threatening to a lot of uh, powerful people. The fact that he sort of went overboard and, you know, dealt with gamblers and mobsters and assassins, that side of it is it. I mean, there are these sort of two or three really brutal murders that are sort of, you know, oh, no big deal, right? Um, so, yeah, I guess if, if you want to see about the inside workings of the Teamsters and how he was kind of, he claimed always that he was forced to get gangsters to help because the big companies would always hire scabs and, you know, vigilantes that would help them out. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, go ahead. What, I, what I'd like to know is, do they come to you and say, don't talk to this guy? Or, or do they say, here's a paper that'll warn you about union organizers or... I would say the biggest sword hanging over our head is the at-will employment law. Um, I don't know exactly when that was passed, but it's given corporations a kind of unlimited power. What's it called? Uh, California's at-will employment law. Okay. And it basically says that uh, a corporation can hire you as long or as little as they like, and they can dismiss you for any reason whatsoever. They don't have to justify it. And so, basically, you know, you are hanging precariously <laughs> by a string. And, uh, you know, they, they can drop your employment, you know, if they don't like the way you smell a certain day. It's that simple. And you're also allowed to do the same, you know, in the spirit of you have the right to work. But <laughs> why would you want to? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so you have the right to leave your employment anytime you want. You have the right to go and go broke. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I worked um, it, with autistic kids for about a year or so in Livermore, 
Um, and I'm not allowed to talk too much about it because they made me sign uh, both a non-competition agreement and also a non-disclosure. So if I reveal details about the kids or my cases or the company, they can sue me. And uh, I had ended up parting with that company because of philosophic differences. Uh, one of the things about them is they were obsessed with money, in my opinion. I mean, they were trying to teach autistic three-year-olds about the value of money, like, right away. And I was just like, this is bizarre. Why are you doing this? Um, I wasn't allowed to receive uh, thank you gifts from families, like, during the holidays. So, you know, if, if a family would give me, you know, a gift or something, I had to give it to the company for their use. And, uh, you know, I... We were refer to kids with initials, and uh, you know I could get in trouble or all sorts of things. So basically, this woman who had never met me in person and was down in Los Angeles was doing a phone interview with me after I moved to San Jose, and basically she fired me without ever having met me, just based on what was you know on her screen at the moment. And she said, "Well, if you really need to pay your bills, you can get a job at Walmart." Um, how kind of <laughs> As if anybody could survive on a Walmart salary. <laughs> Jesus. My God. I wonder how she would like. Uh, I she would like yes, I've been trying to practice forgiveness with this woman, but I, for a while I was very, very angry. <laughs> a better man than me. Uh. Okay, so. Um, Let's see, we're going to talk about so um, Walmart. Boy, that one just, <laughs> I, just got, I just got jammed on that. Clearly, um, she never worked I, there. Like I said, I had a lot of um, I had a lot of odd jobs when I was in college, and I worked for a while as a carpenter, and I was a baseball coach. And I had a lot of, you know, interesting jobs. But once I got into teaching, I was also a member of, of a trade union. While I was going through my um, teacher training, I worked for this trade union, Local 510, that set up and tear down the trade shows, Moscone Center. And the, as you probably know, the convention business in San Francisco is huge. It's one of the real uh, keystones of the, the economy. I think that decision was made a while ago that San Francisco wasn't going to be a port anymore. It was going to be a tourist and convention center. So there was a lot of work. The work, you know, is not really heavy, but and it pays very well the normal kind of BS that goes on between employers and exhibitors and the workers is it's a happening thing. You got to be really militant and know the contract. So I had the good fortune to be involved with two jobs, um, trade show installing and teaching that, uh, were unionized. Um, the union's uh, impact was really strong in, in Local 510. The teachers' union 
it's kind of more give and take. You got to know the people you're ta- dealing with and you make deals with them. And um, so I, I kind of lucked out now that I look back on it, that uh, I was involved in union stuff. Um, okay, so I'm talking about myself here. No, no, it's it's interesting. I'd I'd actually like to know, like, what made you become so passionate about the labor movement and really be an activist for so long? My mother. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the one that comes to mind. We in 1953, there was a movie called Peter Pan. It was one of those big Disney cartoons, right? And we lived in the in the sunset. I was about eight years old. And we went downtown. In those days, it was a big deal to go downtown. You'd ride on a streetcar and get all dressed up, right? And um, we went to see Peter Pan, but it was being picketed by the, the uh, projectionists. So my brother and I had our little Peter Pan hats on. And we're going into the movie, and my mother says, No, we're not going in. I go, Why, Mom? Uh, we're not scabs. So I'm looking on my body for scabs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have any scabs. You can't go in if you have scabs. So, uh, and then when I was in 1953 also, I was in third or whatever grade it was. And my teacher was a Japanese-American woman who had been raised in a camp and um, she was the first Japanese-American woman hired by San Francisco uh, after World War II. And, of course, the district placed her in the, probably the whitest neighborhood in the city, Sunset, which had the highest incidence of you know, wounded soldiers. So there was a big brouhaha this woman coming to teach at the school, the lowest school. And all the moms were up in arms, and this woman was sitting there, you know, at front of the door waiting for her kids, the class to come in. And my mom walked right up to her and in- introduced herself and asked if she could help. You know, my dad had been in the war, and my mom used to say the word jacks all the time, but just that humanity, you know, mm. that humanity kind of broke the ice, and people started approaching the woman more and trusting her more. So those two were That's, That's wonderful. Uh, How about you? You're, you're as passionate, I get the feeling you're as passionate about these things as I am. Yeah. I come from a mixed family. So my my dad is Jewish. Uh, He's from Oakland originally. And uh, my mother's from Tracy. And uh, her background is uh, Scots-Irish. So, um, you know, I have like half of my family is very traditional conservative American. And, uh, you know, there's uh, soldiers, Marines, police officers. Um, But then in my dad's family, they had both uh, business people 
but also uh, there was a couple communists. I had a, a, a great uncle, um, Morris Stoll was his name. Uh, they, they shortened the name from Stolowitz on that side to try to assimilate, I guess. And uh, he was very active in uh, socialist and anarchist circles in, in San Francisco and Marin. So he, uh, he lived in Redwood City for a couple of years. He died, I, I want to say, in 2013. And uh, he had made his fortune after the war by refining old uh, film left over. Uh, he got the silver out of it, and he sold the silver. Right. Yeah, he and his brother. Way to go. <laughs> yeah, so um, he actually wrote a little book. Uh, it was called The Moon Through Many Windows, um, about his uh, life growing up in San Francisco with his father and stuff. And uh, his father had worked as an insurance salesman, I believe. Uh, his name was Barnett Stolowitz. And uh, so my great uncle had a great sense of humor, even though a lot of people in the family thought he was just really out there over the fence. And, uh, you know, he has an old Jewish joke on his gravestone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Sure, I can't wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> so a Jewish mother is out with her child at the beach. And, um, you know, they're walking around and then there's a tsunami all of a sudden. And the child gets swept out to sea. And she screams and cries and falls down on her knees and starts begging God to save her baby. And by a miracle, a wave washes back with her child. And she looks down, stares for a minute, then looks back up again and says, He had a hat! <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so it just says he had a hat on the grave. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, he was a cool guy. Uh, Uncle Maury. He was a unionist or... Um... Let's see. He was a poet. He was involved in the labor struggle. I know um, he helped with organizing. And I believe he also had some real estate uh, over in the hate. And he would rent it out to the hippies and they'd never pay their bills. Nope. So after a year of people just ditching whenever the rent was due, he decided to write it off as a charity. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so coming right up to the present day, um, at, at present now you say you're doing comedy, but how often do you do it? Maybe three times a week, so I'm not grinding like I used to, but I don't know if that model always even works. Mm -hmm. um, just doing quantity doesn't always make for good quality comedy. I mean, it's important to practice, but a lot of us got into this uh, Malcolm Gladwell idea of 10,000 hours to mastery, and we took it to heart, and we took it a little too literally. And also, it's like, when are you going to start counting that? Do you count when you start getting on stage for stand-up, or do you count all the time before that in your life when you were learning how to be funny, too? Yeah, you get credit for that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and people are starting at different places, and they're doing different kind of humor. And uh, in Silicon Valley, where I first started doing stand-up, it's very political. Um, it's tied up to you know tribal politics and all the social justice issues going on right now. So um, you know, I I got this bad reputation for doing alternative comedy that people found offensive, like on both sides. <laughs> and uh, you know, I had to back off for a while. Um, 
because it, it's like there would be this default seniority with comedy scenes where people who were doing it longer would assume that they would were in charge, even though nobody elected them. There was no democracy. But they had the power to ban you from mics or clubs and stuff, and so they could block you professionally. So I liked driving a lot, and I wanted to see more of California because I've heard about a bunch of different places that my family's been in, but I didn't know it personally. So, you know, if I got blocked out of a, a major city uh, showcase or something, I'd just go out into the country where nobody was doing comedy. And also, I would do clean comedy, which is a minority, definitely, these days. <laughs> I mean, I, I can work. That. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can do blue humor, and I don't feel like this kind of comedy is good and this kind of comedy is bad. I mean, they're just different. But it's like there's a kind of comedy you do at a dive bar at 10 p.m., and then there's the kind you do at a coffee shop at 4 in the afternoon when kids are around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the people on one side want to say, oh, well, they're interfering with our freedom, you know, and our right of expression. And we should be able to say whatever we want, no matter how hurtful or disgusting or unfunny. <laughs> and people on the other side say, well, you know, you always have to be clean and don't you dare ever bring up these sensitive topics and I, I want to have nice, polite laughs that never rock my boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had a hat. He had a hat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's see. I wanted to talk a little about my life right now. Um it's you know going good it's hard like you were talking about depression depression is something that's all always there especially when you realize that you know your working working days are over that not just the fact of the effort and going to work and showing up but being having a place having a place out there in the world you know where you get a certain kind of respect and a certain kind of awareness of whether you're doing good or bad. All of a sudden, you're in your 70s, and, you know, you wake up, and then what are you going to do, right? So that's something that um, social justice work has really helped me because there are always situations that are egregious. There are always people who are getting the short end of the stick. And there are always ideas about what to do about that and, and how to make the world better. So that's kind of helped me with, with my depression. Um, you were talking about, you said you either bomb or, you know, you kill, right? Mm-hmm. And we were talking about what do you do after you bomb? So could you go into that for a minute or two? Yeah, I find spirituality or, or religion, you know, I, I don't believe in that division. Um, those practices really make a big difference because y- you have to be okay with both winning and losing. That's just part of life. And I think a lot of people define themselves either as a winner or a loser. And they go to these extremes where they don't allow themselves to just be humans, like you were saying. And... Uh, the godfather of San Francisco comedy, Mr. Tony Sparks, he's always saying, humans, listen. That's his shtick, and it's powerful to me because yeah. he's been teaching us to just respect each other for our, our fallibility and also our wonder. 
And, uh, you know, this is probably one of the most diverse comedy scenes in the country. And so there's so many different people and they're bound to get competitive and bump into each other. But grounding myself in that humanity has really helped me because I can say, okay, I'm not a loser. I just lose sometimes. That doesn't define me. And and the other way, too, because if you think of yourself as a winner all the time, then you can get cocky and nasty and condescending and go, oh, I'm not hanging out with those losers. They're going to contaminate me. <laughs> so, yeah, meditation, prayer, too, actually helps. Uh, diet, exercise, and uh, forgiveness. Big, big issue. And that's, that's really hard for me to do. Um, I was verbally abused when I was younger. Uh, I grew up gay in an atmosphere where people were terrified of HIV and AIDS, and they they take out that terror with just bad gay joke after bad gay joke, and gay became a synonym for stupid in the 90s. So the message I constantly got is, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid. And meanwhile, I had a, a Jewish father telling me, you have to be smart, you have to be smart, you have to be smart. And that made for a pretty toxic combination, so... You know, my, my vice is wrath, and I'm trying to learn to be more merciful and forgiving and let people be people. And in exchange, I hope they return the favor. But I can't guarantee. Okay, I mean, don't answer this if you don't feel like you mm-hmm. want to. How did your parents react when you came out? Um, as a comedian or as a gay guy? As a gay guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as a comedian, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, my mother actually is a nurse, and uh, she treated HIV patients in the hospital during the epidemic. Um, she had been married to my father for seven years before I was even conceived. She wanted a kid for a long time, but he said, hold off until we're financially stable. And uh, so she was really happy to just have a kid, and I think she accepted me as who I am because of that, in part. Her, her background and her willingness to just have a kid to love. So uh, she was okay with it. Um, my dad took a little longer to deal with it. We didn't talk about it directly for many years. It made him kind of uncomfortable. And there's also this social stigma that says if your kid is gay, that's the father's fault. You know, <laughs> he, he wasn't there enough or he, he wasn't involved. He, he didn't model masculinity properly. And that's really not fair because my dad is a wonderful, intelligent, and very generous man. And yeah, he he did work very hard during my childhood, and he was gone a lot. And I think sometimes that was easier, um, you know, than dealing with troubles at home. But I can't fault him in the slightest, and uh, I still love him very much. Okay, and how about as a comedian? How do they... Poorly, <laughs> very poorly. Like the idea. Do they come and watch you and, and um, listen to you? They work? went to about two of my shows, but I got into an altercation with them years ago, and since then it, it really damaged our relationship. Um, I I had been drinking too much one night after I was evicted from my apartment. Um, my landlord was vociferously against the homeless and where we were living in San Jose was down the street from the Salvation Army. It was Homeless Central and he was trying to get them kicked out and it pissed me off. So like I had a homeless guy sneak in and I gave him shelter during the night. Then I got into fights with the other roommate over, um, you know, too many bottles of ketchup in the fridge and <laughs> and silly things about bananas. Like they left bananas out for a month till they got moldy. They finally replaced them. I took one. And he's like, "Who took my banana?" 
Yeah. So I was in a very bad place and I got into a fight with my parents and it really hurt them. And it's, it's the biggest regret I have in life, actually. Um, you know, I've been ostracized from a lot of my family for things I said online about them. Uh, you know, when the country began to divide culturally, you know, I wanted to be on the right side of history. And that meant accusing the rest of my family of racism for their politics, which was something that some of my family members had encouraged. But it just, I wasn't allowed to go to my grandmother's funeral because of it. It got that bad. So I've been trying to mend some of those relationships. And they, they're coming around to the idea that this isn't just a phase. He really is into comedy and he's passionate about it. And and I don't think they particularly like my sense of humor because it can be very dark sometimes. Um, and also, you know, I'll, I'll make fun of things they don't approve of. I'll, I'll make fun of myself, but also my family. And so they, they feel exposed and vulnerable because of that. But um, things are on the mend, I would say. My, my parents retired to Colorado, and uh, my brother's an army officer. He's been to Afghanistan, and now he's been put in command of uh, an aerial unit, I believe. And he's married, and he has a young daughter, my niece. Uh, her name's Matilda. <laughs> I think she's about three now. Yeah, and she's a sweet kid. Uh, I got to see her over Thanksgiving, and I, I sent her a, a toy vet kit in the mail, and she's having fun with that. So, I mean, you know, we, we both really hurt each other, my family and I, but I feel like um, we're coming around. There's a divide in my family. It, you know, um, an older cousin went to Vietnam, and then the cousins who were younger than I were all very critical of, of the war and, and, you know, the right side of history type thing. And then there are a couple of people who are just apolitical. They kind of walk through it all and kind of don't take a side or criticize everybody and embrace nobody. But, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it is. It's easy to criticize. It's more difficult to come up with constructive solutions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, get other people to think about all that. So, um, who do you think should be the Democratic nominee for president? I love Bernie. Um, <laughs> I don't know if the Democratic Party will allow him to be their candidate, to be frank. I mean... The, the bias that's been um, used against him since the beginning is so obvious, it's sickening. And, uh, you know, they've changed the rules a couple times deliberately so that he can't win. Now they're all whining about how abrasive Bernie's people are, right? Oh, yeah, and then some guy got spotted with a Nazi flag at one of his rallies the other day. You know, Trump does this shit all the time. Nobody calls him out on it. But one nutcase shows up to a Bernie rally, and now he's he loves Nazis. Mm. <laughs> oh and, you know, how convenient, right? It's very timely. It makes you wonder if it's like a plant or something. But also, there are a lot of people out there that are unhinged these days because nobody wants to fund mental health anymore. Right. Yeah. The, the whole thing about, about Cuba also, that was ridiculous where he said that he admired um, the literacy program in Cuba. Mm -hmm. He said that was a good thing. And so they were all over him about that. 
Oh yeah, you love the, the communists. Castro. Yeah. <laughs> the Miami Cubans, you know, went crazy. Oh yeah. Well, well we love we... Celia Cruz. Does that mean we love Castro? <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway, so you know, they really unloaded on him last week, though. Uh, yeah, because they're they're threatened by him, you know, and he's calling out people for being part of this apathetic establishment, and. Um, I find it interesting that it's come down to almost kind of a class war thing going on between middle class and working class people over Biden versus Bernie. And there's this idea that, you know, Bernie wants to give everybody these free handouts and he doesn't value our hard work. You know, it's always about hard work. Like, even if that work isn't accomplishing anything, it's got to be hard. (laughs) Yeah, got to be hard, right? Yeah, it's such a, a big trope in a, American culture. Yeah. Okay, well, it certainly has been a pleasure meeting you and having you on the show. Um, you're going to hang around for a while? You're going to be on later on? Uh, I'll be back at 2 p.m. for Storytelling with Jeff Hansen. Okay, come on down to Mutiny Radio, 2 p.m., and meet David and Jeff. And get involved in storytelling. This is Mutiny Radio. And this is the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Last day, so come on down. Want to play our uh, our um, worldwide labor show today. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, March 6, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, unions celebrate International Women's Day with a call to reaffirm the Beijing Declaration. Why the ILO Convention on Violence and Harassment at Work must be ratified. The arrest of a union leader in Hong Kong and singing. A woman's place is in her union. We organize and stand for equal rights. This is Radio Labor. Unions around the world are using International Women's Day to again demand respect for the rights of women. See Marie Ainsborough reports. Winning equality for women in society and the workplace is long overdue, says the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress at the world level. It is using this year's International Women's Day on March 8th to call for a recommitment to the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. The Declaration, produced in 1995, was a groundbreaking initiative calling for the equality of women. The ITUC is also calling for the implementation of Article 8 of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals on Decent Work. Sharon Burrow is the ITUC's General Secretary. Happy International Women's Day. This is a day of celebration. The solidarity, the struggles of women everywhere, we know what a difference that's made. But it's also a day to continue the struggle. We want to see the unfulfilled promise of Beijing plus 15, now plus 25, realised. 
We know that women are still unequal in the labour market. The ILO declaration, the centenary declaration on the future of work last year gave us a promise. We know that we can actually realise decent work for all women if we have a labour protection floor. Fundamental rights, occupational health and safety, a minimum wage on which people can live with dignity and, of course, maximum hours of work, married with social protection. But we also need a transformative agenda for women, the capacity to manage work and family, the capacity to be secure in the knowledge that violence and harassment are indeed eliminated or the protections are there should that arise. We need to know that just transitions for climate, for technology, where women are on the front lines, are in fact on the agenda. And of course, we need to realise SDG 8. Full employment, a labour protection floor, social protection, investment in care, and the elimination of violence and harassment. That's the agenda. The fight is, of course, alive and well because women everywhere are determined to realise a future for women, for all of us. Solidarity. You can find more information about the Beijing Declaration and the UN Sustainable Development Goals on the ITUC's website at www.ituc-csi.org. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. The international labour movement is moving quickly to have an ILO Convention on Harassment and Violence at Work ratified by countries. The ILO, the International Labour Organization, is the UN-specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. Two of the labor organizations working to have the convention ratified is Education International, EI, and the International Trade Union Confederation, the ITUC. EI's Madeleine Kennedy McFoy interviewed the ITUC's Director of Equality, Chitty King. She started the interview by asking Ms. King about ILO Convention C-190. C-190 is the latest convention of the International Labour Organization. It was adopted during its centennial um, conference. The ILO? Yeah. Well, What's the, that? <laughs> very good question. The International Labour Organization is a UN agency, and it is the UN agency that is responsible for setting minimum standards in the world of work. I should also say that it's the only tripartite UN agency, so governments, employers, workers come together mm -hmm. to do things like negotiate new standards for the world of work. Very good. So, but why is an ILO convention important? Precisely because these are the minimum standards that should be observed worldwide um, okay. um, by employers, by governments, and it's a point of reference for us as trade unions as to what we need to bargain for in the world of work. So why did we need to have this particular convention 190? Well, C-190 is a violence and harassment convention, and incredibly, there was no minimum international standard dealing with the question of violence and harassment um, in our workplaces and in everything that's linked to our work before C-190. This was a crucial instrument, as you can imagine. Um, it came also, you know, on the back of all the social media furor around hashtag MeToo. Mm -hmm. But we had started working on C190 well before hashtag MeToo. 
but that did emphasize how important the issue was, how widespread it was, and how urgently governments, employers, workers needed to act to get this convention. So what is the, the fact that we have this convention now on violence and harassment in the workplace, but what does that mean for your average worker anywhere in the world? What does that mean? Well, the first thing that it does is send a very strong and clear message that violence and harassment in the workplace, or in the world of work, I should say, because the world of work goes beyond the physical workplace, is just not acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, as I say, incredibly, we did not have this strong signal before. So for millions of workers, and especially um, women workers, because the convention is very strong on the issue of gender-based violence and harassment, so for millions of women workers, it means that we now have a tool, we now have an instrument with which to try to eradicate violence and harassment from our world of work. Great. So does that mean we can start using it right away? Well, that's a yes and a no answer. Um, <laughs> the yes is that as trade unions, we can already start to use the contents of the convention and its accompanying recommendation. And the recommendation gives guidance as to how the convention should be implemented. We can already start to use these instruments um, to negotiate um, policies with employers um, in our collective bargaining with employers, in our social dialogue with governments. But before the convention can come into force, a minimum of two governments have to have ratified it, so have signed on to it. And even then, the convention will not come into force until the second, a year after the second of those ratifications. Um, it's really important to get those ratifications because then the, the ratifying governments have to put it into effect at national level. And then we can start using it um, in our courts, start making sure that employers are observing what's contained in the instruments. And also we can start using the ILO's own supervisory mechanism to ensure that governments have indeed put the convention into effect properly at national level. The central Chinese government in Beijing is continuing its crackdown on democracy and union activists in Hong Kong. The territory has been hit by protests since the Hong Kong authorities announced that they were planning to send arrested people to the mainland for incarceration. In the latest move, the authorities arrested and charged Lee Chuk Yan, the president of the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions. Mr. Lee was charged with participating in a public rally in August 2019. He is one of 7,000 people who were arrested. Here is Mr. Lee. The police brutality had escalated, you know, from a lot of tear gas, 5,000 round tear gas, 3,000 round of rubber bullets, and to real bullets, you know, and beating up of protesters, arresting about 2,000 people. So all this police brutality is the drive the anger of the people. You know, imagine when your classmate or your friends are being arrested and beaten up police, what will you do? yourself. You may join the protest. The International Trade Union Confederation has called for the charges against Mr. Lee to be dropped. The ITUC also called on the Hong Kong authorities to allow public rallies, stop arresting people who attend rallies, and end the harassment of union leaders. With his report about union events, here is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of their hard work. 
Our top story sections included links to coverage of the acquittal of Turkish union leaders on terrorism charges, the arrest of a Hong Kong union leader, and the almost daily death threats experienced by union activists in Central America. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Among the many stories about wage strikes that we carried this week were ones about Portuguese retail workers and Spanish call center employees. Walkouts by workers fighting government austerity policies included strikes by Spanish social service workers, Mexican university staff, Brazilian municipal employees, and teachers and doctors in Paraguay. There was a solidarity strike in Belize as 150 dockers downed tools when 40 of their comrades were laid off. Attacks on basic labor rights saw healthcare workers in South Africa refusing routine work for a few hours to protest their employer's refusal to meet their representatives to discuss workplace complaints. In a category of its own this week is the Haitian healthcare workers' strike against the general chaos in that country and the lack of resources that the workers have as they attempt to treat the victims of widespread violence. The current round of violence began several weeks ago when the police struck in an effort to gain recognition of their union. Our Working Women pages, now available in nine languages, included stories about International Women's Day plans around the globe, including calls for a national women's strike in Spain, the long and proud history of the working women's struggles in the Australian steel industry, and the fight to win humane working conditions for domestic workers in South Africa. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards magazine carried stories to hundreds of union websites around the world about union condemnation of the targeting of schools by Syrian government forces, the closure of the Louvre over staff fears of coronavirus exposure, while at the same time Australian airline workers face discipline and even the sack for demanding proper personal protective equipment, how electronic surveillance is destroying the health of Indian sanitation workers, and yet another suicide at a Foxconn facility in China. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for solidarity with the Albanian Miners' Union, which is the target of government and employer repression. Fifteen seconds is all it takes to send a solidarity message. Look for details on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with A Woman's Place.
Union Nation is produced by the International Association of Machinists, the IAM. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts on our website at www.radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Estoy pidiendo joyas, ni pieles ni palacios, ni quiero que me alfombren las calles al pasar. Tampoco es que yo exija ni tierras ni riquezas, más que está recibiendo. Tan solo estoy pidiendo sentirme bien amada, que me amen como yo amo, con fuego y compasión. Ojalá comprendiera que estoy desesperada buscando quien se entregue. Yo. Mi princesa de esclava, simplemente mujer, mi dueña de la noche, mi dueña de la noche, que del amanecer, mi princesa de esclava, simplemente mujer. Ni princesa ni esclava, ni esclava ni princesa.
Classic Strange Fruit, 1939, written by a guy who was a teacher at a City College of New York. The Strange Fruit, of course, referring to dead bodies, as Phil mentioned, hanging in the southern forests. Before that, we had Jenny Rivera, great Jenny Rivera from Long Beach, California, with her hit, Princesa Ni Esclava, I'm Not a Princess and I'm Not Your Slave, Simplemente Mujer, Just a Woman. And before that, we had A Woman's Place is in Her Union. part of our uh, uh, world labor. This is about a woman named Elizabeth Jennings. Let's listen up. In honor of Black History Month, we're recognizing Elizabeth Jennings, who desegregated New York's trolleys 100 years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on an Alabama bus. In 1854, Jennings was going to church when a conductor ordered her off a horse-drawn trolley, but she refused. After failing to physically remove her, the driver found a police officer who pushed her out of the streetcar. Jennings sued, and the judge awarded her $225 in damages and ruled African Americans could not be excluded from trolleys. Jennings was a teacher, and before her death in 1901, she founded what was described as the first kindergarten for black children in her home. That's according to the New York Times. If you have a monumental American, tweet us, at Belshi Rule. Elizabeth Jennings, who... Famous. I can't believe it. 
that uh, famously uh, integrated the uh, New York bus system. Let's take a look at our labor beat now. Um, the war in Iraq. What did the U.S. get for $2 trillion spent in Afghanistan? 1.5 trillion spent on the war, 500 billion on interest, 87 billion to train Afghan military and police, 24 billion on economic development, 10 billion on counter narcotics. This is obscene, people. This is totally obscene. And we've left ourselves exposed, right, to things like the coronavirus. <coughs> virus by cutting back on those public services. Nothing, nothing could demonstrate as clearly, as clearly that we need a vibrant government-funded health plan for everybody. There are 30 million Americans with no health plan at all, no health insurance at all. There's probably that number and more of people who have what are called junk plans, where their premiums are very high and the service level is very low. Those people are breeding ground for things like the coronavirus. They get sick, can't go to the doctor, can't afford it. Can't. People say, oh, take time off, don't come to work. Well. <laughs> Hello, I got to put food on the table. What am I supposed to do? Uh, there's a real disconnect between the real lives of people and the awareness that government has of our problems here. Okay, this one involves self-checkout, and you've probably been to your big box store, and you've seen self-checkout lanes, right? Self-checkout. You put your card in, you pay your money, you scan your stuff. In other words, you do the work of a, of a clerk, and you don't get paid for it, of course. <laughs> well, neither does the clock. Neither does the, the clerk. Wouldn't it be better if self-checkout would just die? This is on Vox. Rochester, New York is a notorious model of terrible urban planning and idiotic corporate sponsorship. On the under underdeveloped side of the Genesee River next to the bus station sits the National Museum of Play, an odd institution formed founded by Margaret Woodbury Strong, a Rochester native who inherited millions of dollars and used it to collect thousands of dolls. I saw a self-checkout in the Urban Outfitters in Herald Square and almost called the ACLU. Some lucky employee sits on a stool near the self-checkout stations and does nothing but remove ink tags from things before you buy them. OK. 
Okay, so self-checkouts, basically when you go to a self-checkout, you're taking away jobs. Insist on talking to a real person. Okay, this one is from Labor Notes. When women struck for equal pay. When he talks in, it says one thing loud and clear. Working women are still being shortchanged. On the average in 2019, for every American, for every dollar American men were paid, women received 80 cents. One key in, in the struggle for equal pay, a 1968 strike by women auto workers in England, is the focus of a British movie called Made in Dagonet. It's just right for viewing or reviewing for Women's History Month. There are just a few employee, thousand employees at the Masson Ford factory in Dagenham. Back in 1968, its workforce topped 40,000. Production employees were members of the British equivalent of the United Auto Workers. Only a few hundred were women, all employed in the department where automobile seat covers were fabricated. In the movie, they're called machinists. And while in America that term implies skilled work, as the movie begins, women discover they've just been reclassified as unskilled labor furthermore will be paid less than men in that same category. So the women shut down their sewing machines and walk out. Okay, so check it out. When women struck for evil, e <coughs> evil pay, equal pay, made in Dagenham. This is one that David, you heard me talking to David the first half of the show, and David brought this to my uh, attention, how working class life is killing Americans in charts. And this article refers to death rates, okay, depression death rates. In the 1990s, the number of white adults without a college education who were dying from a drug overdose, alcoholism, or suicide, so-called depression deaths, was fairly low. Looking at a chart here, it's like five per 100,000. However, that number has increased. But over the last three decades, deaths of despair among whites without a college degree, especially those under age 50, have soared. Okay, now this is the elephant in the room. We never talk about 
how people's emotional, mental, spiritual lives are affected by being commodities, by being bought and sold by big corporations or companies who don't care about them as people. And that has an effect. It's amazing. Some people look at uh, drug use in the United States. The uh, Chicano writer <coughs> Richard Rodriguez famously wrote, American sadness has made billionaires out of Mexican drug lords. And it's that sadness we carry around with us because we're commodities. We're bought and sold. Our lives are on the market. So check this out. This is in the New York Times, March 6th. How working class life is killing Americans in charts. All right, how do you like that in charts? Nina Simone. say everything can be replaced They say every distance is not near Any 
understands a man in this lonely crowd Man who says he's not to blame
tanto así que yo guardo tu sabor, pero tú llevas también sabor a mí. Si negaras mi presencia en tu vivir, bastaría con abrazarte y conversar. Tanta vida yo te di que por fuerza tienes ya sabor a mí. No pretendo ser tu dueña, no soy nada, yo no tengo vanidad de mi vida, doy lo bueno, soy tan pobre que otra cosa puedo dar. Muchos más Y yo no sé si tenga amor La eternidad Pero allá tal como aquí En la boca Llevará sabor a mí Mexican love song Sabor a Mi accompanied by an equally famous group Trio Los Panchos 1964 <clears throat> and before that we had we played um, let's see I'm drawing a blank We played Nina Simone, uh, I Shall Be Released, and as I mentioned, we played Edie Gourmet, and we played Buffy St. Marie, Don't Tell Me You're Not the Loving Kind. I don't want to hear it. This is The Bee. listening to Labor and Love Radio on Mutiny Radio. <coughs> Come on down for the last day of the classic <coughs> Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Happy Women's Day to you. We'll do more women's stuff next year. Oh, 
dollars they didn't get. You're on the menu. Never, but never let anything come close to your heart. It's a quiz going out. She said this famous quote. There's nobody in this country who got rich on his own. Nobody moved your goods to market and the roads the rest of us paid for. Hired workers the rest of us paid to educate. You're safe in your factory because of police forces, fire forces, the rest of us need You didn't have to worry about rotting band come and seize everything in your factory. You hire someone to protect it rest of us. Now look, you built a factory and turned it into something terrific. You had a great idea, God bless. Keep a big hunk of it, because part of the underlying social contract is take a hunk of that, pay forward for the next kid who Yeah. Mm-hmm.
radio.fm. Hit the donate button, stream them live, download a podcast, have some fun! Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube. We watch the best movies that, uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. What's happening? This is your boy, Rob Edwards. I'm here to tell you about the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. It's March 1st through the 7th, 2020, with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. all week long. Get your tickets on Eventbrite. Just search Mutiny Radio and get ready for 76 comments from all over the U.S. Coming for 66 programs in seven days, all here at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission, or listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Join us March 1st through the 7th for these amazing events. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought or two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke workshop yep every monday 6 to 8 p.m on the mutant radius so you're saying i could tell my jokes every monday from 6 to 8 that's what i'm saying it's the joke workshop mondays 6 to 8 p.m at the mutant radius yahoo Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counteroffer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counteroffer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counteroffer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. 
counteroffer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com That's subliminalsf.com dot myshopify.com and experience subliminal sf tired of paying too much for your internet contracts and hidden fees got you down tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet 